0: Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we speak with top Italian illustrator Olympia Zagnoli. She designed covers for publications ranging from The New Yorker to The Hollywood Reporter. We also speak with Janine Van Gogh from quarterly title Uppercase. And finally, Jean Hyman, executive editor for Taschen America, on their new book, Looking at Toy Ads. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Coming up on the show, I'll speak with Janine Van Gul, publisher, editor, and designer for Uppercase Magazine, and also Jean Hyman from Tashin America. But we start the show with Italian illustrator Olympia Zagnoli. Her eye-catching imagery was featured in the covers of iconic publications such as The New Yorker and The Hollywood Reporter. Zagnoli also has a line of objects with her father, and a new book out revisiting the last ten years of her career, Kaleidoscopica. Here is Olympia with more.
1: This book is called Kaleidoscopica, which is Italian for kaleidoscopic, and it's kind of a made word that, in a way, for me, resembles um, you know a, a piece of wood or or paper that takes life with pieces of plastic, of color, of fabric, and all these pieces can uh, move around and change. So every time there's a new image, a new scenario that grows out of just like, like these few elements that uh, keep moving around and creating uh, new forms and new shapes. Uh, so that, that was the concept of the book and of this exhibition Uh, of the same name that's gonna open in September in Italy, in Reggio Emilia, which is my hometown. And both the book and the exhibition are a collection of uh, the last 10 years of my career or the first 10 years, uh, because they're the same. And there are a lot of editorial works that I've done in the past for magazines, newspapers, uh, books, and also there are, um, you know, some experiments that I've done in the past with um, 3D objects. So a little bit of design, collaboration with uh, fashion brands, uh, some uh, neon lights, uh, plexiglass sculptures, and also a, a little bit of, um, you know, preparatory sketches and uh, a couple of pictures from when I was little. It's sort of a, a look into, into my world.
2: Are you a magazine fan? Because you do amazing magazine covers, you know, the New Yorker covers come to mind. Recently, I was really impressed by the Hollywood Reporter you did on the Oscar special. Uh, but what's your relationship actually with magazines? Do you enjoy them? Or, cause you know, sometimes you might have to write about perhaps a topic that you don't know much about it. Uh, but what's, tell me your connection with printed media.
1: Well, I love, I love printed media. I love books. I love magazines. I'm not a, a magazine uh, nerd, <laughs> if you want, but uh, because I, 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 I like them, but I'm only subscribed to a few magazines. Some are more independent. Like I really like this Smudge, which is a Los Angeles based um, Riso printed magazine. I love Monocle. I love uh, Interview, and I like Apartamento as well. Uh, so these are the magazines that I, you know, have around the house um, most often. But I like to to look at magazines, like when I walk into a newsstand or or a bookstore. Uh, magazines are always a great source of inspiration because they're. They change so fast, which is something that I really appreciate about editorial world. Like I like the idea of making a cover, and the cover is done in maybe like two, or three days, and then it's published, and you see it on newsstands, and then two days after, is in the trash can. <laughs> which, in a way, for me, it's a poetic uh, vision of learning how to let go of your own work and appreciate it for what it is in that specific moment, but then just leave it and and move forward so i'm not a big collector but i definitely enjoy you know seeing printed media and uh, magazines and
2: talking about cover you know i don't know about you but for example even you know the new yorker i actually i don't buy every single issue but i do choose by the cover at times you know if it's a beautiful cover for example one of your covers I'll definitely go and buy it. So, I think there is such a big power uh, to a cover as well. You have such a tremendous responsibility as well.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I am so fixated with images uh, in general that I buy books for their covers and I I choose magazines uh, by their covers and I judge a book by their cover. Like, I think it could sound superficial because it is in a way, but communication is everything in, you know, the society of today. Like we, we are bombarded with images. So choosing the right image to communicate, whatever message you, you want to send is very important. So I don't appreciate when, you know, book covers are very lazy or done with like stock images or, asking some, you know, in-house graphic designer or, or illustrator to replicate some other illustrator style. I find it very lazy. And since books and magazines are quite expensive, I wouldn't, you know, appreciate spending money on something like that. So I think it's very important. And I'd rather, as a consumer, I'd rather uh, support a, 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 you know, a publishing house that decide to publish less titles or less issues uh, per year, but, maybe more curated.
2: And Olympia, I wonder if you could talk a bit more, Uh, I'm curious myself about, do you have like a line of objects with your father, as I was called Clodomiro. Uh, Tell us us a bit more about that. I mean, that's the name of your father, I guess.
1: Yes. So, um, and it was uh, the name of my grandpa as well. And so that, that, uh, you know, it just started in around 2012, 2013. Me and my dad were talking and we were out for lunch once and he was like, I, I wish we could do something together like a project and uh, uh, we both share a love for design meaning objects and, and possibly well curated uh, things. So we started to think about you know, possibly doing something together and he's like, why don't we open a shop um, online uh, because we couldn't afford to have a physical one. And, you know, you'll, you'll design uh, the objects. And I'm like, oh yeah, that, that sounds great and very adventurous. And he said, um, but I think we have to find a theme like a common, like a red thread or something that, um, that, that we can follow as a theme. And, and he suggested, why don't we choose sex? <laughs> Which was a little unusual to be um, coming from my dad's mouth. So I was like, um, "Okay, so what do you mean?" And he's like, "Well, you know, uh, everyone. We're all human beings. Everyone is uh, is um, surrounded by, uh, you know, love and and." connections and is looking for either sex or just like interactions with others so in a way it's a theme that will never die because uh, we're constantly looking for that sort of connection so so I said okay let's try to keep it as a uh, you know starting point uh, but I'll try to simplify it in the same way that I do with other other works of mine so um, that was kind of the main themes and then from from there we developed a series of porcelain plates we did some pillows we did some t-shirts and and a few other objects the latest one is a vase that's called nudo which is italian for naked
2: it's amazing i mean it's going to be a busy year for you because besides of course the line of your father the upcoming exhibition which i find super interesting when do you think that might be open do you think around september's time
1: it should open around the the 24 of September, so by the end of September, I'm crossing all my fingers, <laughs> and it's gonna be an exhibition in a, a beautiful building from you know 1500, and it's gonna be um, seven rooms. Um, they have like these beautiful rooms that are all frescoed, so there are frescoes on the ceilings and a series of um, panels inside the the place where my work is gonna be exhibited. And again, there are are going to be a lot of uh, uh, works that you'll find in the book as well, which is published by Lazy Dog Press, which is a small but very, very nice uh, publishing house here in Italy. And the works inside the exhibition are um, a lot of them are in the book, but some are not, and, and vice versa. So some some of the works that are in the book are not in the exhibition. So that it's not really a catalog, but it's more of a of a of a guide, let's say. <laughs> And uh, there are a lot of projects that are starting in parallel to the exhibition. Like uh, we're working with um, primary schools like kindergartens in Reggio Emilia, which, is, which are very famous uh, kindergartens because they have a method that's been you know, uh, copied around the world. And um, so, so they have very interesting artistic projects. So we're trying to build a communication with them and a conversation with these other local realities uh, and take the exhibition not just as a celebration of, of myself, but also as a, as a way to interact with the community as well.
0: That was Olympia Zanioli. Her book, Kaleidoscopica, is out now. Staying the world of art and illustration, we now feature the wonderful Calgary-based title Uppercase, a quarterly publication on craft, fashion, illustration and design. I fell in love with one of their latest issues on stationery and paper goods. And they also publish books. I had the pleasure to speak with their publisher and editor, Janine Van
3: Gogh. I like to call it the magazine for the creative and curious, which is the tagline that I put on the the cover. And so that's fairly broad, (laughs) creative and curious people. But it started out as um, my personal interests are in graphic design, and that's where I have my training. And so when I founded the magazine, I was looking at things that inspire me as a graphic designer. So typography, illustration, but also craft and uh, things handmade and looking outside of the world of graphic design for inspiration. So that's where the curiosity part comes into play. And over the years, because it's been 12 years since I started publishing it, um, it's evolved and definitely it's more about craft and handmade creativity these days and um, creative people living creative lives
2: and although you're based in canada i mean just reading the issue here it feels quite international it feels like it's not just kind of for canadians in a way uh is that the case is that what you wanted uh, to do as well
3: yeah it's always been internationally focused if you can call it that (laughs) magazine um, with contributors from around the world and uh, the people that we featured are from all over the place that's part of what I think makes it interesting to curate is those uh, diverse perspectives
2: and I couldn't quite believe when uh, you know I think it says that it's a one woman operation I mean it it doesn't look like it I mean it looks so kind of I mean super professional but it's impressive that as well It must be quite busy as well for you
3: Yes, yes, I'm always, I've always got things to do. But as I said, I'm a graphic designer by training. And so that is my profession. So what I have learned since founding the magazine is how to be an editor, and to learn how to curate and to write and to do all these other skills that I, I kind of got introduced as a graphic designer working for clients and seeing how, you know, working with other people, how say the marketing director of, Calgary Opera, whom I used to work with, you know, how do they market an opera or working with art galleries and publishing with them their catalogs that would go with exhibitions. Um, And I worked with book publishers and so I'd have to input all of the text edits on manuscripts so from all of that in the graphic design world, um, I brought it into my experience as an editor. but. Thank you for the compliment that it looks professional. So it's uh, definitely my professional pursuit and I've put a lot into it over the years.
2: And I must add as well that it's not just a magazine. I mean, as you say, you also publish uh, books and how often it comes out because the magazine is a quarterly, right? Uh, so, for example, how many books would you have in one year, more or less?
3: Um, it depends. So, yeah, the magazine is the main scheduler <laughs> because I have those finite Deadlines. Um, And then I also publish right now I'm concentrating on what I call the uppercase encyclopedia of inspiration. And those are large books um, and they have 300 400 almost some have 500 pages in them, so they are encyclopedic um, and they're all about a particular topic. So um, the most recent one is called Yarn, Thread, and String. And that features artists who use those materials in their work and about um, farmers who produce flax or who raise sheep and like how the, the, the journey of the fiber from, from field to artisan is what that book is about. Um, and so those books are an opportunity for me to really immerse myself into topics that, that I enjoy and that my readers enjoy. So I've done nine of those encyclopedias, so I suppose I'll be doing all 26 letters, because <laughs> each one has is, is got a, a different letter um, on the spine, so I'm doing them in, I call it, whimsical order, so non-alphabetical, but I think eventually I'll, I'll get all, all letters of the alphabet. And then they also publish Little U, which is an occasional magazine. It's a small and cute version of uppercase, so it's like five inches by six inches, so very small, but it has 240 some pages and it's full of content about design and illustration inspired by the children's realm and children's industry, like children's clothing and children's books and toys and sewing softies and all sorts of cute things like that. So that's the range right now. (laughs) keeps me busy. It's a a
2: big range. Uh, The latest issue, which is out now, which I think people can buy you know in your website and also you have some great stockists around the world as well it's issue 49 which is all about surface pattern right
3: that's correct yeah so that's a topic that i've visited a few times over the years with uppercase it's um something that a lot of my readers are pursuing as in a career to become surface pattern designers so to design fabric and products with um, stationery and that sort of thing so it, it's got profiles of 100 readers who submitted their work out of and nearly 800 people submitted. So you know, I curated a sampling of both the best talent, but also diversity of talent and people in all stages of their career um, and showing a range of styles and, and opportunities that there are in surface pattern design. And then there's lots of um, expert advice from people in the industry and then um, articles related to surface design more tangentially and
2: by the way i I really want you to revisit stationery and paper goods again because i loved the issue 48 so much as well Uh,
3: yeah that one has uh, been very popular it's on its way to being sold out already which is kind of a shame because (laughs) people are really loving it
2: i mean that's amazing what are your biggest markets outside canada uh of course i found your magazine here in the uk i mean but i'm not sure if the uk would be a big market
3: um, well, actually, um, the United States is the biggest uh, market for the magazine, and then Canada does well. And then I have an excellent distributor in London called Central Books, and I've been working with them since 2013, and they do an excellent job of getting the magazine out and about in the UK. So that I think the, the, the UK audience is a lot more the people who find it in a stockist like you did. But we do have subscribers, fairly substantially, I would say, in, in the UK and Australia. But North America is really the, the biggest market currently.
0: That was Janine Van Gogh there from Uppercase Magazine. To buy their most recent issue, go to uppercasemagazine.com. And finally on the show, a little nostalgic trip. Tashin's new book, Toys, A Hundred Years of All-American Ads, is a delightful companion of toy ads in the United States in the last century. The book goes through the must-haves for kids in every decade. The book was edited by Gene Hyman, executive editor at Tashin America. He tells me more about the book and the upcoming Tashin releases this summer.
4: You know, there was advertising in the the first half of the 20th century, but what really, you know, jettisoned the advertising was the baby boomer generation. So, uh, after World War II in the late 40s, early 50s, toy manufacturers realized they had this uh, huge market that all of a sudden existed. And so then they aggressively started to advertise toys uh, in places that weren't uh, marketed before. So, Yeah, you see exponentially a a much larger advertising uh, of toys happening to address that baby boomer generation. Um, They're the ones who really had the, the not necessarily they, but their parents had the money, you know, to uh, purchase toys. And prior to that, especially in the early part of the 20th century, leading up into World War II, toys were kind of a a special thing. A lot of toys were made by hand, things were handed down. So you didn't have a lot of uh, marketplace for toys. It was kind of a luxury item for a lot of uh, mainstream people. So the advertising wasn't necessarily there because the market wasn't there. Uh, but again, after, you know, after World War II, that's when it really took off. And, Jin,
2: uh, I have to to add as well. I mean, it's amazing kind of the research you've done for the book, because I think we were discussing before the interview, you know, that after the 50s, it's a bit easier to find some of the ads. But before that, it was very hard. It was mainly in trade publications. But, you know, you did manage, and there's quite an impressive uh, kind of uh, pictures in the book how was this kind of research process uh, well
4: we kind of looked for the obvious places of um, you know magazines that were geared towards children so there would be a you know a boys you know a boys magazine or there would be boy scout magazines and of course they would advertise you know products in in those type of magazines so there were there were in the 20s and 30s there were magazines that all, all of a sudden uh were in the market that address specifically children and that this was a whole new thing because children weren't really considered you know part of the uh publishing target so with that we looked for those you know those particular things comic books as i uh, mentioned earlier were a great vehicle for because you know that was what children were looking at were, you know, comic books. And that's where you see the introduction of the character uh, related to the product. So that Mickey Mouse was probably one of the first ones that, you know, Became a huge, huge success with marketing the toys, followed by other comic book characters uh, in the 1930s, and then you get into the the 40s with the, the um, western characters, Roy Rogers, and so on. And they they really, really started to market, you know, products, everything from you know clothing to food to uh, jewelry. Uh, anything you know, to go you know with with children. So it was a little rough in the really early years from the turn of the century, primarily because toys were not manufactured in the United States. The main place where toys were were made was Germany. So Germany had the market pretty much corralled up until World War one. Once World War one hit, forget it. you know, there was a ban on anything from Germany uh, in the United States. And so that made, you know, American manufacturers start to produce more toys along the lines. And then you get the 1920s and the economic structure of the United States changes so that the middle class now has more expendable money for things like toys, because prior to the 20s, toys were a luxury item, usually reserved for people of means. Um, But if you were middle class or lower class, a a toy was almost unattainable, uh, even at Christmas time. So, you know, you see these kind of economic shifts and the toy industry rises to the occasion as each one of these uh, kind of economic shifts happens. So, but correspondingly, you know, the advertising is hard to find. So yeah, we really had to dig, you know, pretty deep. Uh, Catalogs were great in the 1930s, the Sears catalogs. They featured a lot of products that we couldn't find anywhere else. And I have to say
2: from the 70s onwards, I could kind of see already some similarities of what we have today because there's been kind of more licensing. You start to see kind of toys based on Star Wars among other kind of films or, or, or TV series. Uh, I think the 70s was, was quite an interesting one as well.
4: Yeah, 70s is, you know, starts to, uh, by the 60s, you know, is a well established toy industry. So they had uh, conventions every year, there were, you know, a lot of uh, uh, interesting products being introduced. Uh, Again, they still had the baby boomers attention. So there was a lot of product that was coming out. And the ads were similar in the 40s through the 50s. And then it starts to shift in the 60s when advertising agencies got involved. And then you start to see the look correspond to more mainstream advertising so the type gets you know a big headline with small copy large photograph and so they're really formulating the ads based on the general advertising world the exception is comic books and in comic books kind of anything went because the reproduction was so bad because of the print in comic books doesn't you know really sustain good printing quality so sometimes that you know the registration was off or the graphics were really garish and I, I actually really respond to those just because they're so bad often <laughs> and the products that they're offering are so offbeat with sea monkeys and you know a hundred soldiers for a dollar uh, twenty-five cents or a dollar whatever it was but they were really they were really you know catering to this uh, to kids in particular well you know larger companies toy companies really had a more a sophisticated formula to approach the advertising these
2: days i'm not exposed you know to toy ads i mean do you think they, they have the the ads from today have something to learn from the ones uh, featured here in the book
4: oh, i think so but you know it's just translated that the media has changed you know you're you're not going to have you know a, a, a group of children and young adults the people who are the you know the buyers of this product aren't are looking at anything in print you know, it's, it's very foreign to them. So the advertising is going to be much different. You know, it's going to follow more, more you know, video trends, you know, getting their attention that way. So they can learn from it, but, you know, print is static and, you know, this new generation wants everything flashed before them in, you know, YouTube version. So it's, you know, the market has changed and the advertising has changed. So in some ways, you know, it's a nice encapsulation of a, of a time that, you know, no longer exists
2: (laughs) besides this fantastic book i mean of course uh, you work for tash and are there any other projects you know for the summer that you you guys are excited about as well just for our listeners to know as well
4: well we have a whole slate of things i mean we really kind of accelerated even within the the confines of the the covid uh problem. Um, We haven't stopped, you know, putting projects forward. My own personal projects that I'm working on is a photographic history of California. So uh, I did one on Los Angeles a few years back, and now we're going to do one on California. So interestingly enough, no one had ever done a book on the photographic history of Los Angeles. There was a lot of different books, but nothing that you know, encompassed from the statehood of 1850 all the way up to, uh, you know, into the 21st century. Uh, And the same thing is is going on with the the book on photography. Uh, We have a really nice Hockney book coming out. Uh, david has been in in Northern France uh, for the past two or three years, and he's uh, on a little farm uh, in the Northern part of France, uh, pretty much isolated, but he's done a whole series of uh, uh, paintings on his computer uh, of the changing seasons, and it's pretty fantastic. That's really a beautiful book. We have a big Salgado book that's coming out also, the photographer. So you know, some some really nice titles, you know, in that direction. The other project that I'm working on is a book on European menu design. I did one on American menu design that was from the 19th century all the way through the 20th century, and we're doing the same thing for European menus. So that book is laid out, we're, we're delayed a little bit on that coming out, it'll probably come out in 2022 as well as a California uh, portrait of, a, of the Golden State. So those are a couple things to look forward to.
0: That was Gene Hyman there. Toys, 100 Years of All American Ads is out now. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fp@monaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to it again at Monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. And before we go, a little song for you. Harry Nilsson, Cuddly Toy. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.
4: I never told you that.